Hi, I'm Chris Pajali from Temple of Schlock, and this evening I'm here with... I'm Matt Verboys. I'm a producer based in Burbank, California, and the co-owner of a soundtrack label called La La Land Records. And uh, we're here to talk about Walking the Edge from 1982. And right off the bat, in 1982, Jay Chataway's uh, really great pulsing driving score is going to take us into the Los Angeles night. Uh, full of danger and sets the mood instantly for this picture and serves as a foreshadowing for the journey that our lead character, Jason Walk, played by Robert Forster, is going to make. This, this music theme sort of becomes his theme as he becomes a vengeful anti-hero later in the picture. And you just have these great shots of uh, L.A. at night, still looking very much the same and also very much uh, different in some cases, as we'll see throughout the picture. There's the Hollywood freeway, uh, oddly uh, empty and moving, <laughs> which it uh, doesn't always do. And then uh, coming up here on the right hand side, you'll see the uh, Capitol Records building, the famous uh, Capitol Records building with its Christmas decorations up. So we know this movie was shot in the late fall of 1982. This was uh the executive producer credit there, uh, Marketing Film, that was a West German company run by uh, the producer of this movie, uh, not Sergei Gontroff, but uh, Manfred Menz. Uh, this actor here is uh, a stunt coordinator and stuntman, Phil Frevel. We're going to see in a few minutes uh, why he's playing this part. And coming up here, as we move past Nancy Kwan, we're going to find on the left-hand side, legendary character actor Joe Spinell. Uh, just a fascinating actor to watch and always exciting when he's in the picture. He's just always interesting and uh, such a great face. Uh, we know him from The Godfather and Taxi Driver and, and then as the lead in uh, Maniac, a really uh, great uh, horror performance there actor who left us too soon this actor here with the hat uh, also left us too soon Luis Contreras uh, he was a regular in Walter Hill's movies he was in a lot of them uh, Long Riders 48 Hours Extreme Prejudice Red Heat uh, also a couple of Alex Cox movies <laughs> wonderful dysfunctional family of, uh, of uh, killers not people you want in your living room. No. <laughs> and this was the first night of shooting this scene. Mm -hmm. And uh, apparently the original cinematographer was drunk, so they had to uh, <laughs> replace him right away. Yeah, they, they realized the lighting was off and they uh, looked to him for uh, adjustments and he was passed out. So he was promptly fired and uh, another cinematographer was hired, I guess, the next day. Uh, the actors were all union, but everybody else was non-union. So the cinematographer, since he was union, he took a pseudonym. We'll talk about that in a little while. Uh, yeah. Go nice suspense sting by the composer. Mm -hmm. 
Brewster. He's coming. Okay, Jimmy, the girl. Hey, Sue. No! Engine building. Yeah. <laughs> I love that face, man. He's great. We get some violence here, setting up the revenge. Yep, and there goes the stunt coordinator. <laughs> now the uh, uh, the cinematographer uh, took a pseudonym that's. Uh, the same pseudonym that an FBI agent used uh, during the app scam <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, uh, events of uh, a couple of years before this. So he would have taken the uh, pseudonym because of the union, right? To do the picture. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because he couldn't uh, couldn't work on a non-union picture. Now, coming up here, uh, Joe Spinell has a line, uh, let's take it on the arches, uh, which is a line that he introduced in Taxi Driver as the dispatcher. Uh, he says to Robert De Niro, you're going to bust my chops. If you're going to bust my chops, you know, you could take it on the arches. And uh, he, he, uh, he brought that to Taxi Driver because he had heard... Uh, he said he had heard James Cagney use it in a movie, although I don't know what James Cagney movie that was. Uh, but uh, Lenny Montana says the same line in Fingers, which was a couple of years after Taxi Driver, uh, starring Harvey Keitel. And then Keitel says the line in Smoke, the Paul Auster film. So these guys, uh, these guys are like out of... Uh, out of an Elmore Leonard story. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, we've sort of opened the picture in kind of a sort of familiar early 80s, you know, um, Los Angeles crime drama exploitation picture. Death Wish 2 kind of really comes to mind because of the setting and the time period. Um, but, you know, 10 to midnight. and and uh, But here's kind of where things... To your Elmore Leonard point, they kind of shift right about here. The rhythms between the characters, it becomes much more natural and really kind of character focused and has a loose feel that that um, really kind of makes this picture a little bit different than those. Um, and we're meeting Robert Forster here as Jason Walk. Um, and if you you know, listening to the commentary, then you've seen the movie, so you already know that he just gives a really wonderful performance in this film. It's it's relaxed, it's fun, it's also energetic, and he manages to balance all kinds of uh, aspects of his character from sort of the sad, pathetic, uh, uh, has-been baseball, uh, never-made-it uh, loser kind of guy to uh, somebody who's thoughtful, and he's also a romantic lead in this picture, he's also frantic, and he segues into becoming a rather vicious anti-hero, uh, all with a plum, and just really great work. And that was the exterior. That was a popular Mexican restaurant in Silver Lake called uh, El, El Quistador. Uh, it's still a Mexican restaurant. It's now uh, El Condor in Silver Lake. And this is not the interior. This is uh, somebody's house in Hancock <laughs> Park, not a restaurant at all. But... Um, 
but you know, this is this is what I think a lot of us love about low budget filmmaking is that mm -hmm. you, know, you can see this and you understand and you know when we when we point out something like this you know we're not disparaging the movie we're, uh, no quite the contrary it it's like yeah. how did you make it work what did you, do? <laughs> um, you know you threw in a little bit of uh, sound design in the background mm -hmm. and you made it you know you made it work but really honestly one of the things that really works in this movie is right what you're watching now this give and take between the characters uh the director, uh, Meisel, really lets the actors have time and to bring something to their scenes. And it's engaging, it's fun to watch, and it makes scenes like this, which are essentially an exposition dump, right? There's a lot of heavy lifting here about the plot. We're setting his Jason Walks baseball pass. We're setting that he's running, uh, you know, he's a, a, a collection guy for the mob and that, um, you know, he doesn't have the guts to you know, uh, get one of their uh, clients, Leon, to, to pay up. A lot going on here, but these guys are so invested and have such good energy with each other. It, it um, They make it part of the scene. They make it part of their character. And it's it's really fun to watch. So if we don't have the big budget, you know, gunfights or car chases, um, you have all that you need and more because of these performances. And uh, Forster in particular, just working every moment of this thing. And uh, yeah, this actor here playing the fat man. Um, yeah, I couldn't remember ever seeing him in a movie before, but his voice sounded so familiar. And it turns out he, he gets a lot of uh, voice work. Yeah. yeah. He's got a great line there. The world don't give a shit about nice guys. <laughs> <laughs> Something Jason knows all, only too well. Don't push Leon around too much, okay? <laughs> Fuck you. Now the uh, the director Norbert Meisel uh, always wanted this to be a uh, kind of like a John Garfield movie because he saw Robert Forrester as a John Garfield type. Yeah. Or or capable of playing a, a Garfield type. And here we go past. Uh, and an L.A. icon that is sadly gone, Tower Records. Mm -hmm. um, you probably would have rented this movie on VHS at the Tower Records uh, video, also in uh, Hollywood at the time. A lot of this picture is shot in the Hancock Park area of Los Angeles. I think this is actually Hollywood, but it's all sort of in that old uh, Los Angeles area. Um, much of it in Larchmont Village, as we'll see later. But this uh, complex was in Hollywood. Ivy Bethune, yeah. Ma Peabody in Back to the Future, <laughs> Peabody, uh, the farmers who find Marty McFly, the same year that this movie was released, 1985, and yep. she's the nosy Mrs. Johnson. She was uh, married to Stuart Lancaster for a long time, an actor from a lot of the Russ Meyer movies. Uh, here's Jackie Giroux. Yeah, yeah, wow. Ivy Platoon lived to be 101. This is uh, Jackie Giroux here, who uh, was in a, a lot of uh, exploitation movies in the 70s and 80s. Uh, things like uh, Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS, and uh, Bedroom Stewardesses. Uh, later started producing, and I think directing also, and she wrote some, some movies as well. 
she's in uh, Trick or Treats, the Gary Graver horror film. Right, right. With David Carradine. You give her hell, Jason. Slap the out she was in a movie called Regina uh, that's kind of a lost film that was sold as a rock opera. I think there were different versions of it, uh, like a PG and R-rated and, a, and an adults-only version. <laughs> he has been pushed around and pushed around a lot lately. <laughs> he really, performance really invites us in to feel his uh, frustration. And again, all these bits of business, uh, uh, Meisel really giving the actors room to, to play, um, which is really natural. The chemistry here between these two is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I with this actress, Erica Wells, I wish she had done a lot more because she's very good and she has great chemistry with Forrester in this film. Um, not, <laughs> not, not only wish that there was more of her in this movie, but also uh, just more of her in, in other films. Yeah, and, yeah, sure. And she's she's really good in this, and she has uh, she's in Sharky's Machine, but it's uh, it's a strange role. You, you barely see her. She, she's uh, she's there. You hear her, but um, there, there's a there's a plot twist that I'm not going to give away that sort of relies on the audience not seeing her. And this is a really nice piece of, um, you know, just just the way that the frame is blocked. Uh, you know, he's he's infinite, right? So not only is his life in turmoil, he's being pushed around. He can't even get it, you know, the deed done in bed. So here he is in the frame. He's in the lower position. She's in the dominant position. But still, he's likable. He's likable in his in his uh, tailspin that he's in, and. Uh, and she likes him too because of that. And there's something very human about uh, Jason Walk, the way that Forster plays him, mm -hmm. which is important because where he's going to go later in the movie, we we have to be on his side. Um, and it's uh, you know constantly throwing in baseball references. I mean, because he's still very much living in the past. And, right, uh, and it's it's yeah. really. It, you know, it's it's it seems simple, but it's really effective stuff. We met him wearing his uh, baseball T-shirt. And it's just like a constant reminder uh, that that character is stuck in a past that he can't uh, get. But it's mm -hmm. always present. It's it's you know, he wears it on his back just oh. like he wears it inside. Yeah, I mean, it's even it's his, it's his name, Walk. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> you know, but but Forster really just leans into it and makes it believable. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, he he really liked the dialogue in this script, and that's why he. Uh, brought Kurt Allen in to write Hollywood Harry. Right. Also the the feel of like an older B movie that mm -hmm. this has, you know, like like I said, you know, like a old boxing yeah. movie or <laughs> Yeah, it, it yeah. kind of flew in the face, I think maybe in the of the way it was marketed and what people, especially coming off Vigilante, folks probably would have thought they're going to see a very kind of reserved uh, sort of inner 
inner turmoil kind of performance from Forrester and it's not that brutal things don't happen in this movie they do and we're going to see that but it's really more concerned about these moments and and we're lucky for it mm-hmm. and here we are in uh, Larchmont Village an area of Los Angeles just south of Paramount uh, Pictures and a lot of this movie was shot in that area which is right near Hancock Park uh, the service station which in the movies on the corner of Larchmont Boulevard and uh, Rosewood is no longer there it's a nail salon but the corner is still is still there Here we have uh, some more baseball, baseball there references. He is in his baseball shirt. Yeah. And uh, A. Martinez is the actor here on the right. And he uh, had a, a st- still still working, still you know showing up on television shows. He just had a, a series for a few years, uh, Longmire and. Uh, <laughs> And again, you know, we'll, we'll keep saying it, but a lot of movies wouldn't pause, especially a movie shot this quickly, Exploitation Picture. Mm-hmm. And there's the lovely Nancy Kwan, uh, wife of the director. Yep. And um, this role was uh, developed for her. Yeah, they met in Bangkok when she was filming a movie that was eventually released as Night Creature with Donald Pleasance. And then I guess their first professional uh, job was on a erotic drama that she had co-wrote and produced uh, for her husband, right? Yes, yeah. Well, she produced it. I'm not sure that she, she co-wrote Or story, it, under a pseudonym. Right. That is like co-story as well, I think. Here she says uh, she's superstitious, and this is cab 23. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the number 23, of course, we, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. You could, <laughs> right. you could look we it up on, on the Google. On the Google. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it figures into conspiracy theory, which is another movie about a cab right. driver. We're just a nice uh, kind of taxi driver throwback, very reminiscent of the way that uh, Betsy, Sybil Shepherd is shot in the back of Travis Bickle's cab. Mm-hmm. Um, and with uh, Chataway's kind of, you know, smooth jazz score in the background, it kind of evokes that, that feeling. Hmm. And so you know, this is uh, kind of a fun thing she's about to go on her first hit we did all that driving around in reality we're just basically across from the service station so she never needed to call a cab she could have just walked across the street basically but then we'd have no movie so um (laughs) and this gimmick of course you wonder if michael mann maybe saw this film because uh we have a cabbie who's driving a, a fare around who turns out to be what she turns out to be right yeah, that's that's the other uh, non-New York. Uh, right, that that's uh, where, where was that shot? Collateral, Collateral. L.A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's There's what I few thought. L.A. cab movies because it's not you know a thing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Cabs to the airport basically 
and certainly back in the day along the strip on the weekends and whatnot, but not really a part of Los Angeles uh, living. Um, so it makes sense that Robert Forster is kind of using that job as a cover to do his real job, which is, you know, collection guy, basically. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's an old. Uh, that that would have been a, a get smart. Actually, I think it was a get smart joke where you get in the cab and give an address, and it turns out to be across the street. Jerry, the boy. There was a uh, uh, another movie uh, that came out the same year that this was filmed called Hit and Run, which was uh, about a cab driver who is hired to uh, to take a woman to uh to a mansion in uh, it was it, it's set in new york in manhattan but uh she wants to go to a, an estate in connecticut and uh it, it turns out to be a, a another case of uh well in, in that case he he gets set up for a murder and yeah the score kind of hinting to us that something is about to go down um, I like Star is about to come into some trouble. The mess that hits the window here. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a, a run to Ralph's to get some smuckers. Right. <laughs> the caterer just yeah. came by and yeah, ladled something at the. <laughs> kind of joins. Uh, early 80s female uh, vengeful assassins like Miss 45 sudden death mm -hmm. yeah yeah well it was there was a, a movement and I think it was uh, really the exterminator the success of the exterminator yeah. in 1980 uh, that kind of convinced independent producers uh, like and then, and yeah, and then this would have come after death wish 2 also which... right was mm -hmm. sort of a successful return of that series. In fact, kind of the only thing missing from this picture is the Canon logo in front of it. Right. <laughs> and then Forrester ended up making Hollywood Harry for Canon. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no it's like, it's about to walk into his cab here. Like in this, the spring of uh, 1982, you had Death Wish 2 mm -hmm. and um, Fighting Back with Tom Skerritt right. and then there was a, a older Canadian movie called Search and Destroy that got re-released as Striking Back and, and then Vigilante was filmed around that time right um, and then that movie I mentioned Hit and Run was released theatrically as Revenge Squad even though there there's really no revenge or, or revenge squads in it <laughs> details right <laughs> There's that taxi driver shot again. Yeah. So, on our way to our next location, which they say is on western south of Wilshire. It's almost over. But uh, in reality, we're going to go somewhere in the, in the valley. For, uh, not yet. We're still, uh, looks like La Brea here, but... 
it's amazing how much of sort of everyday Los Angeles kind of still looks uh, still looks the same. All right, so that's that's L.A. Basin. But as we go to now, we're in North. <laughs> we're like in North Hollywoodish area, Valley Village, because the upholstery place in the background, Nacho's upholstery, believe it or not, is still there. Yeah, almost 40 years later. Yeah. And here we're going to meet the uh, the day job of our uh, <laughs> of our uh, homicidal hit squad, Brew Star. Like everybody has a front. They're they, right. they're all doing something. That's uh, not, not quite legal. Thing, yeah. 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 So, so these guys are working for the drug dealers. Uh, Nancy Kwan's husband was dealing drugs. Bob Forrester runs a garage and and, uh, and drives a cab, but he's right. also running numbers. Here we go. And that's <laughs> these guys doing their own stunts. <laughs> Go, Joe, go. Little frisbee foo there. <laughs> yeah, you know, Spinell takes a dive uh, and yeah. uh, it's it's pretty convincing. And then later he throws a punch and that's not convincing. No, <laughs> but it doesn't need to be. It's just right. it's just him. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Exchanging bullets. Here we go. Yeah. Now we're back out on a think Laurel Canyon because the ACCO transmission sign is still <laughs> is still present um, and now we're back in launch uh, launch Mart village area that's the El Royale uh, hotel building there in the background mistakes have just changed and Forster <laughs> really plays it to the hilt he's He's just great. But then when he finds out that she's injured. He, right. Uh, yeah. Yep. And, and it's it's a, a very convincing switch also. Yep. I mean, he just uh, he switches into concern for yeah. her. It's, it's just such a well-rounded uh, character, and it's performed that way with just a lot of nuance and makes him so likable and right there Are you hurt? You're hurt. Uh -oh. well you know norbert mizell uh worked for a long time uh well he was an actor mm -hmm. uh when he got to la and uh you know, did a lot of appearances on tv shows like combat and yeah yeah uh, and by his own control. admission he hadn't directed all that much um but he knows he, his acting background really shines through here because that's really what works in this picture. Um, yeah. In some ways, the rather kind of conventional photography, it's not, you know, very flashy or even necessarily skilled in places, but it it conveys a, a, a real Los Angeles that provides a real environment, but mostly just stands back and lets the actors do their thing and, and draws you into the picture that way. Mm -hmm. Are you sure you 
Now this this artwork in the background here, this was uh, artwork that Forster himself brought to the set as uh, set design. Uh, it was done by a friend of his from Rochester that he knew uh, coming up. And is a wonderful <laughs> contrast to the artwork we're going to see hanging in his bedroom later. So, right. Uh, <laughs> Jason Walk is a multicultured guy. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, a uh, friend of his uh, named Ramon Santiago who did this artwork in the background. These like pencil sketches. Thank you. It was a sick thing to do, lady. Sick you know, Norbert Meisel also directed a lot of stage in L.A. Uh, he ran or co-ran the uh, Santa Monica Playhouse. And uh, he, uh, among other shows, he brought the, uh, the Robert Shaw play Man in the Glass Booth to, uh, to, the, uh, to Southern California. He had the West Coast rights to that and did, did a big production of that. Uh, among uh, many other shows, acting as well as directing and producing. Yeah. Well, the theater experience really, I think, shows. Thank you. Is it bad? No. Forrester does something here that uh, is interesting with the knife, where he puts the knife up to his uh, to his head on the with the cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't look like a stab wound. I don't know what the hell it is. Knife is gonna figure into the picture too later. Yes, I was lucky, yeah. Listen, I got some stabs. Something we use for sliding bruises. Again, bringing it, still bringing it back to baseball. Yeah. It's it's interesting how the writer and Forster really chart the characters shift and change because the the baseball references are gonna are gonna start to take you know to phase out once. He has to become sort of somebody else. Because at this point in the picture, he's still holding on to sort of a ghost of who he was or what he wishes he would be. I think I read somewhere that uh, A. Martinez uh, played baseball, semi-pro mm. or a minor league. So I, I, should have mentioned that earlier when they're doing the scene with the gas can when uh <laughs> yeah. need that need that arm to yeah. open the gas can he was actually a pitcher too hey martinez and here is the channel seven news update on the mystery hit and run murder he's one of those oh here's uh this is the producer sergey uh gontrov as the news reporter yeah on the tv he, he worked on, uh, he did post-production supervision on uh, Norbert Meisel's first movie, The Adulteress. Here we go on the coffee table, the remnants of a bachelor uh, seven-course meal. Looks like a six-pack of Schlitz and a pack of Camels. <laughs> Nice little shift in uh, wardrobe. Uh, again, it's simple but very effective. Um, Jason Walk's life has sort of taken a turn now because of what has happened. 
and we have lost the baseball t-shirt. It is now gone, and we've got a black tee. Kind of foreshadows a shift in character and, and where he's about to go with his life. Now, uh, not long after this, they, uh, Nancy Kwan and Norbert Meisel uh, made another movie, Night Children. Right. So a few years after this. Uh, it was at the end of the 80s. It was towards the end of the 80s. I think it was 80, 88, 89. And, right. and, uh, but like this film, a totally different film, but crime drama and very rich and sort of on the street, Los Angeles, um, you know, daily life, location kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, working with Gary Graver on that as the cinematographer and so you have a, a lot more movement in that film, camera movement yeah. and uh, more money yeah, <laughs> time, more money mm-hmm. <laughs> this is Johnson it's, uh, she is on top of everything going on in this complex and in uh, Jason Walk's life You know, I, I, I get the impression that actors and actresses really enjoyed working with Mizell because, uh, you know, you, you look at everybody in this movie and you have a few a few people we'll point out later who uh, had little or no experience in film and acting and, and they do they do a good job. And, they come off yeah. well. And again, that's, you know, Mizell and the uh the sort of non-intrusive cinematography just it lets them play i do like that about this film a lot i'll say it till we're blue in the face but everybody even the smallest roles have a little chance to do something even if you're a punk band called uh, falling idols <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and a perfect uh place you know if the if the bar where um Jason was hanging out, was was mellow and uh, a little sort of moody and introspective. Of course, our killer is going to hang out in the punk bar, right? Right. Now I wonder if if this had actually been, you know, because we're pretty sure that this was written to be New York. Uh, I, I wonder if this uh, would have been like the Continental or CBGBs. Or... There he is, kissing punks. The irony here is. Uh, you know, Spinell led a very lively, uh, energetic life, uh, to be sure. Probably partied harder and stronger than anybody in that, uh, in that, in that club. club. <laughs> this is like, a, you know, like one of the 52 pickup scenes. Yeah. With, with the, the villains and that, uh, which would have been the book at this point because the movie hadn't been made. Right. Uh, Again, everybody just has these great little pieces of business here. And here's our little dysfunctional family. This this is, you know, when they're not killing or working at the service station in the, during the day, they're just shooting the shit. This, this has the he's, he's going to say the line about the morons <laughs> yeah uh, 
two of you don't add up to one more. I, I love this sort of moving eulogy about a guy who cut somebody's throat, you know? Right. <laughs> but it's, you know, he makes it genuine. It's, it's uh, that's what constituted a good friend, you know? Yep. Fallen brother. Yeah. It's like the the whole last half hour of the Wild Angels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Love this. Celebrating the loser. <laughs> Take two of you to make one fucking moron. That's uh, that's all you need to say, right? So Spinell's character name, it's it's uh, it sounds like Brewster, but it's Bruce Star. Mm-hmm. It's uh, uh, also Bruce, but don't call him Bruce. He's right. Well, I think like that's that. that's why they call him Bruce because yeah. it's you know, too much of a <laughs> effort to to say yeah. Bruce Star. Yeah. He just has an interesting wardrobe too. It's great, great. Tied off, it's you know the ear, the earring really just sort of sets it all in motion. Jumbo's clown room, famous uh, Hollywood Boulevard, sort of East Hollywood Boulevard haunt, uh, became a you know strip club, which is now sort of a burlesque, kind of a hipster burlesque club. Uh, Courtney Love danced there in the '90s, but. it's a club on Hollywood Boulevard near Los Feliz. Again, just nice to build these characters and their relationship. Um, movie just has a relaxed feel that invites you to hang with these uh, characters. Now, I was fairly certain since A. Martinez had done pretty much every television show during the 70s that he had worked with Forster before. And uh, they did work together on uh, Nokia, which was a, a short lived uh, crime cop show that, uh, that Forster was on, one of his uh, one season wonders. He had two of them back to back, one called Banyan. And uh, and then Nokia was the next year. He played a Native American cop, uh, like a deputy in uh, in Nokia. And then Banyan was a a period piece, uh, kind of like uh, kind of like Hollywood Harry, because he wears the same suit. He wears the Banyan suit. Banyan suit, right? <laughs> Ten years later, in Hollywood Harry. The one and only time Robert Forster directed anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, wrote a part for his daughter, had, had a part written for his daughter mm-hmm. in that movie. Um, kind his, of the same uh, way that uh, Kurt His Allen son worked, worked as a production assistant on this movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. see that the first cinematographer never would have been able to <laughs> to do yeah. the lighting on this here yeah 
Yeah, this is an example of, of uh, you know, the, there is there is some nice stuff interspersed to this picture, and this is this is one of those kind of really evocative of uh, you know classic film noir. And now all of the scenes like this one with a Martinez, uh, they were all done in three days. They only had him for three days of work. on the streets of Hollywood. Uh, and no question as to when this picture was shot. Uh, <laughs> good, good year for Hollywood movies, 1982. Lots of, lots of cool stuff. Well, a lot of these were, uh, were summer releases, but you have Creep Show, which was uh, the fall. Right, I think it says uh, coming soon. Yep. She's great. Mm -hmm. Frankie Hill. I don't. She didn't do much. She should have done a lot. She, she should have. She's, she's great in this scene. Again, setting up the name that we heard earlier. The. Uh, pimp uh, Leon who owes money for the fat man that Jason uh, nobody thinks Jason will be brave enough to try and collect from but circumstances have forced him possibly to reconsider uh, that <laughs> now he closes uh, this scene with a great laugh yeah Yeah, most of the characters in this movie we see at least twice, but there are a couple. Well, there's one. There's one in particular that we only see once. Right. And uh, he's. We'll, we'll tell the story later, but he's actually the actor is sitting in the back seat. Oh, that's right. During this scene, because they're going to shoot that this stuff later, right? That's right. Right. The same night they had to shoot. <laughs> so we'll, we'll mention Love that in a little lab. bit. <laughs> Again, low budget filmmaking. Yeah. I'm gonna go to Leon's club. Just thinking about it. Big move for him to make a stand. Mm. Not ready yet. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> I love. I do love that. There's more concern and suspense sometimes about Mrs. Johnson finding out what's going on than the killers on the loose uh, that are after them. But uh, you know, she's she's imposing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and you can tell, you know, that he he does like her because you know, he watches the games with her and everything. But she's just so nosy. This is a very funny scene. Yeah. And his delivery is really good. Mm. And then when he gets inside, uh, <laughs> Nancy Quad, who has heard everything. <laughs> yeah. Between, between Forrester and, and uh, yeah. 
time just in case a burglar. Again, much more just sort of an environment, uh, you know, building than you typically see in in a picture like this. Um, Keep it bolted up real tight and curtains. That'll help. Yeah, and and also more more of a throwback too, because yeah. you, know, you, you would see little things like this in older movies and uh, situations like um, in a lonely place, where you know where Bogart lives in a in a apartment complex, kind of like this. Yeah, I mean, when you have a budget this low, if you have, I mean, you know, this is a gift to be able to have talented actors like this in your in your piece. But, you know, if you don't have money, well, the talent doesn't cost, you know, money if you have them. And, you know, use it for all it's worth in all the parts, big ones, small ones, because um, that's what you got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's, here's more bachelor uh, cuisine. You know, wine in McDonald's <laughs> uh, never gets old. <laughs> and diet Dr. Pepper. That's right. Yeah, there, there must have been a product placement deal at, at some point with Dr. Pepper. Yeah. Coca-Cola. And you, you, you really have to have two strong talents to be hated. Because there is a lot of flip-flopping, you know, in these scenes. Uh, we like each other. You should go. You should stay. What am I doing? There's a lot of up and downs and... and, and um, they handle it well. They make it, you know, as believable as can be uh, expected. Doesn't make much difference. Once you walk outside that door, they'll find you in two hours. Every street. And again, nice work from the composer, Jay Chataway. Um, Star Trek fans will know him as a big composer for all the incarnations of Star Trek. Uh, once the Next Generation started, he composed music for. Next Generation and Star Trek, uh, Deep Space Nine and Voyager and Enterprise. But um, fans of his Star Trek TV work may not know that he, you know, got his start in in a lot of these independent genre pictures, working for Bill Lustig and Maniac and uh, Vigilante and this movie and Maniac Cop. Um, 85 was a big year for him because uh, he had this movie come out, uh, Invasion USA and Silver Bullet, and really kind of positioned him as a notable Hollywood composer. Yeah, yeah, it was really, uh, just really lustig uh, hiring him for Maniac that kind of launched him because of uh, yeah. uh, Norbert Meisel brought him in based on Maniac mm-hmm. uh, to do this. And you know, Vigilante hadn't been uh, or had just been shot, but hadn't come out yet. Right, great uh, Chataway score there. Really kind of funky Morricone. Uh, it's a really cool score. Mm-hmm. And then the Joseph Zito films, you know, Missing yeah. Action and, and well, yeah, Invasion you know, USA, um, yeah. eighty-five really with Silver Bullet and Invasion USA. It, it kind of took him from um, you know the low low to mid-range budget uh, indie to studio stuff mm-hmm. and um his career took off from there you 
not bad at all. Well, you have bad stuff yourself. Yeah, Nancy Kwan really uh, wasn't around much in the 70s. I mean, she had done so much in the 60s. And then sure. in the 70s, it was mostly you know, some uh, some exploitation films, some things that were shot in the Philippines, uh, usually with Ross Hagen, who I think was a neighbor of hers. Uh, so, you know, you get to... Uh, you get to the 80s and uh, she's doing you know parts like this and and uh, you know kind of stepping out and being the lead again after uh, some inactivity or uh, you know like villain roles and in, in right. women and you know, or, or uh, co-starring roles in uh, like night creature and Forster got involved in this movie um, because of uh Norbit being at the Cannes Film Festival, right? Right. Yep. And it was just uh, came together really quick, apparently, um, after they met. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like, uh, like a month or two, I think, that they uh, they put this together. And they were filming. Beige building there across the street is still there. And there's the El Royale in the background again. No, they, they, they can't turn the camera anymore because then they'll show the <laughs> I mean, you, I, I, yeah, you wouldn't recognize it. It's, right. it's nondescript, but it's still just kind of funny. Now he takes his car now, right? Because yeah. they need to remove the bullet holes or something from the from the cab. Even though he's quit the cab company, he says he's no longer. Yeah. There, I mean, it's it's pretty cool, you know, sort of cover if you're a collection person, right? Get around. Uh, get around town. Do your job in quotes while you're doing your job. <laughs> you know, the uh, getting back to that hit and run movie I mentioned earlier, um, uh, that was based on a novel called $80 to Stamford by Lucille Fletcher, uh, who was the first wife of Bernard Herman, whose uh, last score was... Taxi, taxi driver. driver, yeah. <laughs> Comes back to the taxi cab, you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, another another little number twenty three. I'm going to dangle in front of the <laughs> the, the uh, conspiracy theorists. Uh, taxi driver came out in 1976. If you add up one nine seven and six, you get twenty three. And then the rift opened, and we were never seen again. <laughs> again, kind of joking about, uh, you know, paying Leon a visit, something that he's going to have to work up the courage to do.
A, uh, a. Martinez is one of those actors that I wish they would uh, interview for Shock Cinema magazine because he has a you know he's he's in a lot of things. He, he yeah definitely you know worked with a lot of people. He was in the Cowboys, so you know as far as I'm concerned, it, 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 that working with John Wayne gets him a get some space in Shock Cinema or, or other uh, cult magazines. Do you ever see the take? He's in that also. With, I, I uh, haven't seen the take. Uh, and Billy D. Williams. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good good crime movie. Nice guys finish last. Not me. Jason Walk kind of holding the ball in one hand, sort of part of his character still kind of hanging on, but he knows he's in a in a in a different place now, and he's got to push forward. And there's the music. There's our theme that we're hearing now for the first time since the opening of the movie. And it's very much tied to Jason now taking matters into his own hands, transitioning from a passive character to an active character. And he's got that nice pulsing, uh, broiling theme. Now, reportedly, they just kind of went to places <laughs> and he just sort of walked in and out of buildings, uh, you know, for his collections right yeah yeah because they, they they stole some of these things they probably yeah, yeah. just yeah told them to have this actor report to this yeah, he is a great place. bit he, he uh finally gets his money and he surprises himself <laughs> right. gives that great look that holy shit i did it right maybe i'm gonna do it again and <laughs> and he is here he goes yeah well yeah, these are the these are the the shots of him going yeah. in and out of the. <laughs> I think it's the shoe service store has a has a, uh, a video rental poster in the window. Uh, I imagine you know at this time the following year you probably could have seen Walking the Edge in the little rack that was in there that had VHS movies uh, to rent, right? Yeah, from yeah. Bestron. Right. Well, that was on video, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that was the time when everybody was renting videos. I mean, that's oh, how yeah. Kim's you know Kim's video started out. It was a laundromat, I think, that had. Well, that too, and 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 mom and pops that sort of were established in whatever area. Some of them would branch out and say, "Hey, you know, take a rack of uh, movies, you know, in your store." And uh, mm -hmm. here we yeah. go. We got some cash. Yeah, I remember movie theaters that had videos, like in the lobby, they right. rented videos also. Here we go. Keeping baseball in the mise-en-scene, even if our main character isn't present. Uh, whether intentional or otherwise, still very effective. And we got Dr. Pepper there in the background again. <laughs> <laughs> Don't call him Bruce. So like McKee's wearing a baseball shirt, and then uh, and then Brewster shows up wearing uh, a baseball cap. Yeah, all kind of keeping, and they're talking about Jason Walk. So it's just you know, again, attention to character, attention to story, all these little beats and touches. 
uh, enriching the lived in. I mean, it's it, it feels like a very kind of lived in movie that you're sort of airdropped into these environments with these characters. This is, uh, this is how this family communicates with each other, you know? <laughs> well, this, this is one of the few scenes where uh, I think, you know, if if this was indeed written to be New York and then they moved it to L.A., uh, I'm not sure that that's the case. But uh, th this is this is one of the scenes where I, I just I wouldn't picture happening in, in New York. Yeah. It's it's casual villainy, you know? Very very Los Angeles. Now this right here is, is sort of worth the price of admission. Uh what's about to happen here. Uh Joe Spinell grabbing a bat and getting ready to uh <laughs> field some pitches in the batting cages. This is great. Don't ever call me asshole, asshole. <laughs> Don't tell me ever what to say or what not to say. Um, just kind of a great reversal in the scene. We all know who the, who the head bad guy is here. There's no question. to to Nancy Kwan's character you, you after having such a strong sort of introduction as our assassin who's uh, you know using a cabbie to bring her from hit to hit mm -hmm. she is fairly sidelined now as this becomes you know more increasingly more Jason's story um, right but she you know makes the best of, of what she has um For any uh, younger folks watching this film, those are telephones. <laughs> Pay phones, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, we mentioned Death Wish 2 earlier. I mean, that's that's another one that was uh, originally, I mean, that was the, you know, at the end of Death Wish, uh, Kersey's moving to Chicago. Right. And the second novel, Death Sentence, is set in Chicago, but Death Wish 2 got moved to L.A., mm -hmm. and that was just something at that time, you know, you have 8 Million Ways to Die, which yeah. was based on a novel set in New York that gets moved to L.A., um, you know, 52 Pickup, <laughs> yeah, yeah, more, <laughs> yeah, to go along with the Schlitz. Um, yeah. 
uh, you know, 52 pickup was set in Michigan. That gets moved to California. Uh, so I, I, I do believe that this, this was at one time uh, a, a New York. They had New York in right. mind anyway. But, you know, because of the way that the scenes play out, the sort of elongated, um, you know, uh, letting the actors play around in the scene, that, that sort of nature of it plays well as a Los mm-hmm. Angeles set picture the the emphasis not really being on the cab driving once the gimmick you know at the outset is kind of finished right um so you kind of it it works mm-hmm. yeah i mean he, he tells her right up front you know that he's not much of a <laughs> yeah he'd much rather, he'd rather not take the fare exactly <laughs> right the air conditioner stinks it's uncomfortable yeah. it's yeah <laughs> Yeah, here's uh, Frankie Hill's second scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the actor's not still in the backseat that we were talking about. Uh, no. <laughs> no, but probably the cinematographer, <laughs> the director. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, there are probably three absolutely. or four people squeezed back there. <laughs> I mean, she could literally walk out of this movie onto Vice Squad, you know, basically shot around the same time and would have been, uh, you know, right in there, too. Yeah. We're in Larchmont Village again. This is all right near where the service station is. So all, all that area. Kind of a trendy. Uh, it's it's still has a, a kind of a small town feel to it, but it um, it's uh, you know restaurants, uh, you know, brunch places, kind of a Sunday morning kind of kind of uh, coffee shops and kind of trendy. Um, but I mean, this is elsewhere. This is outside a production uh, building. I'm not sure which one. Nice intro to that scene. Now this uh, this actor here with the hat. Uh, he. Uh, and, well, and, and the actor he's talking to, um, the two of them, uh, we should mention them. Um, the actor with the hat uh, is in uh, was a writer for actor and writer for uh, some of Rudy Ray Moore's movies, and uh, and then he actually turns up as a character in uh, My Name uh, Dolomite is My Name. Oh, um, the writers is the one that plays uh, the Keegan Michael Key plays. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy uh, Jimmy Lynch, I believe is his name. No, I'm sorry, Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones. Yeah. Uh, he plays Gabby in this. Yeah. He wrote Dolomite and the Human Tornado. 
and uh, and I think he's also in Disco Godfather too. But yeah, Keegan Michael Key uh, plays him, and Dolomite is my name. Uh, and then the actor who's here, uh, who plays Leon, uh, is not an actor at all. He's a dancer uh, who uh, Robert Forster knew. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure if they hadn't cast the part or, or what, but uh, Forster said, you know, I, I know a guy who would be good for this and, uh, and, and brought him in. And he's yeah. great. Yeah. I yeah. mean, he's, he's perfect for the scene. And, you know, this this is kind of interesting about this picture, too, because it, it's sort of in any movie like this, at this point, he's, he's mustered up the courage to approach Leon. That would kind of be it. He approaches him and shakes him down. This this film says, nah, you know, not quite yet. Jason's not quite ready to take him on just yet. So he was able to muster up the courage to get in there, but he's going to leave without his money. <laughs> yeah, his name is uh, Russ Courtney, and this was his uh, one and only acting job on film. And I just remembered uh, Jerry Jones there with the hat um, was uh, the doctor in Disco Godfather. He's the the drug uh, right, right, the, right. The, the drug counselor. Yeah. Who uh, shows shows Rudy Ray Moore uh, all the all the people who have uh, gone crazy from Angel Dust? I think think he had a beard in that, but uh, but that's that's Jerry Jones. Yep. <laughs> continuity thing. He's in his blue shirt there or something. Oh, yeah. uh, they needed to steal that shot. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Because of A. Martinez's, you know, solid work in this part, where you know we really feel badly when we see that his characters come to this situation. Yeah, you know, because uh, uh, Delia says, you know, you shouldn't be driving around in his car. Yep. And uh, everybody knows, and and uh, Spinell says it. He says, "Yeah, everybody." <laughs> you know, he's like, yeah. you know, "Who who told you I know this guy?" Everybody. <laughs> yeah, I guess based on this, uh, and you know, and he's he's the sleazy lawyer and vigilante. Uh, Forster just wanted to give him a nice guy part for Hollywood Harry. That's right. Yeah, and he did. So, yeah, he said he's always, you know, like breaking people's hands or yeah, <laughs> drilling them or scalping them. Yeah, or worse, right? Right. <laughs> he's probably not even in town anymore, man. You guys scared him. He ran away. That's what he told me he was gonna do. That's bad news for you, Geronimo. Yeah, when you're dealing with a a, a low budget movie shot, you know, in two weeks. You don't really have the money or other resources to do, you know, large scale action scenes like car chases and um, shootouts that are uh, much more elaborate than what we had there uh, with 
Nancy Kwan jumping into the cab. So yeah, that's that's yeah. sort of the big bravara action film action scene yeah. in the film. So you have to kind of make up for it with uh, you know for the exploitation crowd. You have to make up for it with blood and and you know, and Joe Spinell. And, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Joe Spinell. That's your special effect, <laughs> Joe Spinell. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. You know, yeah, you have scenes that border on, you know, slasher movies, yeah. violence, uh, yeah. like like we get at the end, the bodies showing up and so on. Yeah. Now their relationship is going to kind of escalate. That's it. Don't bring up Mrs. Johnson, you know. You don't like it, you blow. Go away. I like it here when she's, she's like, I, I'm trapped. Yeah. You can't This is a great line. I'm no coward, but I'm no killer either. Um, he's going to prove to not be a coward. He's going to prove to be a killer. And then also coming up here says he's uh, he's no coward. But he's no hero. And also, same thing. He's not going to be a coward. He is going to be a hero and a killer. Um, so he's, he's going to surprise himself what he's capable of. Yeah, you know, uh, that, ju judging by that shot he took at Leon there with the pool ball, I, I'm not sure about his uh, pitching. That was to uh, pitching what, uh, what Joe Spinell's yeah. punch was to boxing. Well, it, it, it's, you know, it also just speaks <laughs> to this idea of, you know, how, how good, you know, was he really, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but right. Here we go. You got yeah. something else uh, besides uh, whatever baseball memories or wishes. You got something else to... Mm -hmm. To look forward to maybe in this future if he can muster the courage well you know everyone needs three hugs a day right yeah you know, now uh so we know tarantino <laughs> saw this movie and he did uh robert forster said that uh, tarantino had seen walking the edge mm -hmm. and apparently there was a foot massage scene that was filmed for this that was <laughs> that was uh, not used and uh it's subtle as a sledgehammer but cutting between the the love scene and the uh ear torture um mm. it's it's disturbing it's effective here's where you know your evening's going south when spinel reaches for the uh power drill the power drill <laughs> there's just there's no other direction your night's gonna go Brutal. So to your point, you know, we don't have the money for the car chases, but we can uh, suggest something really, really awful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I, I believe that was mentioned in the Variety review. Uh, Lawrence Cohn's review when it opened in New York uh, he pointed out that. You know, I, I think one of the reviews I read suggested that even uh, the Forster's character had done some drilling. And it's like, no. You know, mm -hmm. 
it's funny how like an image like that is so severe that you'll remember it featuring even more prominently than it is. Mm-hmm. Right. But no doubt about it. This is nasty. But it, it has to be because it needs to justify what uh, Jason Walk is going to do and, and sort of make us, the audience, okay with it. Now, when this, uh, when this came out in January of 1985, uh, it was released by Empire Pictures, and it was the, the first of two uh, releases from them the same day. Uh, they, they opened uh, this in New York, and they opened Ghoulies in Los Angeles. And uh, the decision, I think, was they, they wanted to open Ghoulies in New York, but they didn't have enough prints struck. I think was, uh, I, I heard something about that. So uh, what they opened, I think they had like 60 prints that they opened in LA. And then they had 81 prints of Walking the Edge that they opened in New York. I think they had like theaters booked for New York. They had to put something there. So that's why they did. Yeah, it was, um, you know, I, for some reason it was off my radar because I played at the theater that I typically went to at uh, Mohegan Lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, mall in Westchester County. It, the picture played there. I mean, so the New York opening was fairly, uh, you know, well represented at least that opening weekend. Yeah, yeah, played here in uh, New Rochelle. Here I am recording this commentary. I thought it was uh, fairly amusing that uh, in Jason Walk's bedroom there is an X-rated film uh, newspaper magazine ad hanging on the wall. <laughs> which uh, in total contrast to the art prints that are in his apartment. Right. <laughs> um, here we go. This grisly discovery is going to, what's going to sort of uh, make the character transition complete. Well, you know, um, getting back to an X-rated ad, you know, Norbert Meisel's second movie was a X-rated film. Uh, That's right. Love, Lust and Violence. And right. Was that it also was, called like Mafia Wives or something else? Had, it had another uh, title too. Yeah, I think. I think it was called Mafia Girls also. Mafia Girls, it, okay. yeah. But it it got most of its play as love, lust, and violence. And you know, this was during that porno chic era. Yeah. When you know you got full page ads in Variety, you know, boasting of how much money uh, these hardcore porn movies made. Right. And, you know, and his name was on it, and so was Stan Camber's as the screenwriter. We'll see Stan Camber in a few minutes. As ah, the there you go. There's, there's our yeah. Here's our discovery. And you know what? That extra time mm-hmm. uh, spent with that character, you know, it counts for something. Yeah. You know, makes you feel for what happened. Tell you one thing, everybody's privacy in that complex just got a lot more secure. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Jason. Now, this is the actor we were talking about before who was actually hiding in the backseat of the car uh, during the first interaction Jason has with the hookers because they were about to film this next. Yeah. Yeah, uh, this scene uh, was shot the same night 
like Matt said, uh, as the scene with the hookers. And uh, this this actor here is uh, a guy uh, by the name of Leonard DeJohn, who is friends with Robert Forster. And he was called in at the last minute because uh, the actor who was supposed to play this part, Michael Pataki, dropped out uh, for some reason, uh, couldn't make it. And so uh, they were, they, they needed somebody fast. So uh, Forrester right. said, oh, I got, got this buddy of mine. And uh, so he was learning his lines in the back seat during the, sh the filming of the other scene. And, and I believe it was his idea to just shoot this all you know, from the back seat in one take. Right. We got, uh, well, they, they have a really great rapport. And again, in the middle of this seemingly kind of freeform uh, conversation and dialogue, we get plot points uh, and foreshadowing. You know, the character says McKee is, is out looking to cut your asshole up. Well, that's a piece of information that's going to, you know, have some meaning in a couple of minutes. <laughs> And this, this is, um, well, actually, we don't see the fat man. We only see the fat man once also. Yeah, he just has the one scene. Yeah. Great line, a little great line of business for this character, Mick. There's no hope for me, but I'm clean. And it's those little touches that sort of, you feel like you know a lot about that guy's life in a, in a very short sentence. Yeah. And, um, you know, this movie does its best to sprinkle that all over the place, which is great. Yeah. And, and since they were friends in real life, it, it works. You know, mm -hmm. it, it definitely, you get the feeling like these guys have a history. And he was, he was used a couple of times in, um, uh, Fred Williamson hired him for a couple of his films in the 70s, uh, Lenny DeJohn. He's an adios amigo and mean Johnny Barrows. And, uh, you know, Fred and, and Forster worked together several mm -hmm. times in the, in the 80s. Yeah, well, they, they were uh, um, in original uh, Gangsters. Robert mm -hmm. Forster was in that. And that was yeah. Fred Williamson produced and starred in that movie that Larry Cohen directed. Yeah, and uh, the, there was another one that they were in with uh, Frank Pesh was in. Um, Bad you know, it's interesting that Frank Pesh isn't in this because they're, you know, these guys were really good friends, uh, mm -hmm. Pesh and Spinell and uh, Forster. Yeah. And Pesh and Forster, you know, popped up a lot together <laughs> in a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Down and Dirty was the one that I was trying to think of. Um, yeah. Pesh and, and Forster and, and Fred Williamson directed it and starred in it. Mm -hmm. And uh, other other people, Gary Busey's in it. And, Charles Napier. Uh, this actor here was uh, named, I believe, Peter Pan. And he's uh, he's speaking Cantonese. He's saying, I, I don't I don't know this woman. I don't know what you're talking about. And we should mention Jimmy, too. Um, mm -hmm. He uh, he went on to um, uh, be a lawyer. Um, mm -hmm. But James McIntyre is the actor's name. Mm 
Very good. <laughs> there you go. We're a whole new ball game now. And say hello to hot weather, you filthy fucking scum. I'm no killer, he says. Okay, I want you to get a message to the woman for me. Uh-uh. Christine, you tell her that I'll meet her in front of the pre-dawn club between 2 and 4 tonight. I'll be there uh -huh. between 2 and 4. Pre-dawn club. Jason is my name. She'll do what she wants to do. Yes, I, I will. Thank you. I will. The uh, the Hitchcock bit coming here. Oh yeah, <laughs> Norbert Meisel's uh, little cameo as he walks by. The, yeah. There you go. The exterior is the central, uh, which became uh, the Viper Room in the '90s. Johnny Depp's uh, kind of famous club, which it still is. Um, but in the '80s, it was. Uh, it was the central, um, the exterior anyway, and that's where um, the Plimsolls sang A Million Miles Away in Valley Girl. Um, but this band, this is uh, Falling Idols, and they were actually uh, uh, a punk band, uh, Los Angeles-based, out of uh, actually uh, based in Long Beach. And uh, we'll see them more in the... Uh, scene that comes up after the bathroom scene here this was um filthy mcnasties back in the late 60s and 70s yeah probably the best club name ever right <laughs> well it was used for other clubs after that i know yeah yeah you know i i was uh just thinking you know uh, james mcintyre who plays Jimmy, uh, he also, he wrote Night Children. Right, that's right. Yeah. And uh, Mizo directed that uh, after this. Yeah. Hmm? You're an <laughs> yeah, this, this is... Uh, They're used to pushing there. this guy around. It's going to be a whole new, whole new thing here. This doesn't strike me as the type of club I'd want to use the soap dispenser in, you know? <laughs> in the restroom. <laughs> I'm just not sure that that's soap. Some of the members of the band would uh, go on to other punk bands. Uh, Randy Bradbury would play bass in Pennywise. Dave Quackenbush of Falling Idols uh, became the lead singer of the Vandals. Hmm. And quite possibly the best line ever uttered to clear a bathroom ever. <laughs> Coming up right here. Say that anywhere, anytime, any bathroom in the continental United States, you will clear that room. Guaranteed. And that was an ad lib. 
<laughs> Forrester great. just uh, just yelled it out. <laughs> so uh, yeah, the the bartender here in this club is uh, a guy by the name of Stan Camber, who is a, a stage actor, you know, TV actor. I think he had a contract with Fox in the 50s. Um, but yeah, Norbert Meisel knew him from the, the, you know, the, the L.A. stage scene. And uh, he wrote the, the movie that I mentioned earlier, Love, Lust and Violence. And uh, also wrote a Ross Hagen film called Bad Charleston Charlie. In the 70s. Yeah, he's in a few of Jamafanaka's movies, and he's also in a movie that James Hong directed that's uh, really funny called uh, The Girls Next Door, also known as Teen Lust. Good actor. He, he did some TV uh, later in the 80s. Uh, uh, first in 10, he was on that. And, uh, some, some other network shows. L.A. Law, I think he was on as a judge. He had a recurring part on that. So we got a big climax here. It's it's a cli it's it's not particularly well blocked uh, mm. this climax or, or covered necessarily, but it doesn't matter. The character work is so strong. You know, we just want to see Jason Walk take Brewster out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, we kind of know what he's up to because we saw him take these bodies. <laughs> right. But, you know, it's also not, it's just not, um, there's no choreography to it, to the discovery of the bodies. It's, it, the idea is there, but it doesn't quite pay off in the execution. But again, we just want to see Bruce, and he hates being called Bruce, um, <laughs> you know, Look, look scared for once. They call him Bruce and live to regret it. That's right. You want to play games, huh? Yeah, I mean, when, when this opened in L.A., it, it really, there, there, it just got drive-ins and action theaters, just a handful of them, no, right. no newspaper ads or anything. It was just total, total grindhouse filler. Uh, by by that time, you know, within a couple of months of the New York release. Yeah, but the reviews did point out, you know, Robert Forrester's performance as <laughs> as worthwhile, which it most certainly is. Oh yeah, yeah, no, de definitely. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of these movies that just kind of got shuffled off to the action circuit, they're they're good. You know, it's, it's just mm -hmm. the only way to sell them was to the action crowd. Sure. Yeah, um, you know, and, and by the time this came out, you know, it was made in '82 when the vi the video cassette scene was just starting to spread out and, and become, you know, a, a little more uh, prevalent. But uh, you know, the by 1985, when this was out of theaters and the deal with Vestron was happening, uh, you know, the 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 video craze was in 
full bloom. And, right. And these deals relied on theatrical releases. So right. that's yeah. yeah. If you if you opened a theater, you'd get better uh, proliferation in the uh, in the VHS stores, you know, mm -hmm. the rental uh, stores. Yeah, it was a contractual obligation that you had to be in X amount of theaters. And, uh, you know, the, the only movie that did well for Empire theatrically was Ghoulies. They made the rest of their money on video. It's uh, great that the that Blu-ray and high definition has made uh, something like this possible for folks to see the film. Uh, honestly, the best it would have looked, this is gonna look better than any of the release prints, uh, certainly the VHS release, and um, there was the Anchor Bay DVD release, but it's, it's great to see a picture like this, uh, you know, looking the way it was shot and uh, available for everybody to see now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I first saw it on the Vestron tape <laughs> almost forty years ago. So this this looks so good. It's a, it's really great. Here we go. <laughs> Jason's not afraid of Leon now. Back off. Now, how long do they say that this this uh, pool game has been going on? It's, it's, oh, yeah, right. Like, like nine hours or something. There you go. Respect. Will that she? Was, won't she? <laughs> that was a real shocker when uh, when Robert Forrester passed away. It was that the weekend of the Sleepy Hollow Film Festival. Yeah, it um, it it just such a uh, perform the kind of performer you just you're so happy to see him whenever he's on screen, and um, you know. Jackie Brown obviously gave his career another another boost, but I, you know, he still would have had more performances in him for sure. Yeah, yeah. he used to give uh, people uh, letter openers when he, he he met people. He would give them a, a letter opener, and uh, I I know some people that worked on DVDs with him, and you know they have. <laughs> three or four letter letter openers oh, that's that they great. Got from, from Bob Forrester. <laughs> <laughs> and off into the Los Angeles evening and a future, dark future, hopeful future. We're not we're not sure. In in classic noir fashion. Yeah. 
and the night starts up again with that great theme. Um, I think we, we both had the opportunity to, to meet Robert Forster. Um, I, I produced a documentary on Larry Cohen called King Cohen, and he was gracious enough uh, to do an interview for us and uh, could not be more gracious and, you know, really interesting and delightful to talk to. Uh, he was there with Frank Pesh, of course. They, they, were, uh, they were a team, very good friends. But um, really, really grateful for um, all the work in his career that he was able to get and, and certainly grateful for Quentin Tarantino um, giving him a gift. That's that's what he told me repeatedly. Jackie Brown was just a gift. Yeah, yeah I I, uh, I got to see him uh, when I was helping out with the filming of a, a group of interviews for a documentary on Randy Jurgensen, the uh, New York police detective who uh, worked on Vigilante and a number of number of films in New York, like Cruising and French Connection, and it had actually been involved with the uh, the real French Connection bust. Uh, so uh, I interviewed uh, Robert Forrester, Frank Pesh, and William Lustig. Well, it's great to have this movie uh, preserved so that folks who are fans of Forrester that haven't seen this uh, get an opportunity to see a really engaging, really fun Robert Forrester performance. Uh, 